Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. I'm Laura Slattery and on this week's show we'll be looking at Apple's new smartwatch with our technology expert Kira O'Brien. Kira will be talking us through what the launch means for Apple and for already smartphone-addicted consumers. We'll also be discussing Arthur Cox, not the law firm, but the man behind it. Economics editor Arthur Beasley will be here to tell us about the eccentric genius who became known as Lord of the Boardroom, but was many more things besides. But first up, should we all say goodbye to our naked wrists? Kira O'Brien was in Berlin this week for the launch of the Apple Watch and got a first look at the device. Kira, what is the Apple Watch and why is it different from other smartwatches? Well, the Apple Watch was actually announced back in September last year. So we've been waiting a few months to find out a bit more detail about it because obviously at the time they weren't giving too much away. Um, what they did this week was uh, give a bit of detail on prices, battery life, the important things that people really wanted to know about. The watch is designed to work first and foremost with the iPhone. So if you're an Android user, forget about it. This isn't going to work for you. Um, it's a companion device rather than replacing your phone. Um, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of people have naked wrists these days. I think it's a, it's a bit of a, a push to try and get people back into wearing watches full time, let alone when you're going to have to charge every night. But Apple is pretty confident that it has a, a design that will actually work for people. So what it will do is it'll allow you to make and take calls, send and receive messages, read your emails, uh, get notifications straight to your wrist. It'll track your activity. Um, if you've been sitting still for too long, it'll give you a gentle reminder. Check your heart rate. Um, you can customize the watch face. Now, if you are looking at the existing smartwatches, there's not a huge amount of this that isn't already done by competing smartwatches. So Apple has tried to put something extra into it. So it uses Apple Pay, for example. So you could, uh, well, when Apple Pay launches this side of the water, um, if you have an Apple Pay account, you could use your watch, say, to pay for goods in a shop. Um, they have, I think it's a vending machines that are Apple Pay enabled, so you don't even have to try and fumble for spare change anymore. So. But as I said, that that actually hasn't launched outside of the U.S. yet, so we're still waiting on that. Uh, this is some of the apps that are look really interesting. Say, Star Wars Hotels will allow the, the the through the app the watch to be used as a room key. So again, that whole thing of of getting back to your room and fumbling for a room key, that's going to be gone. I'm, I think really the Apple Watch is it's obviously going to be for Apple fans, um, mm. and it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here because. 
as I said, there's already quite a few smartwatches in the market at the moment. They haven't really caught on as well with consumers as I think they would have liked to. Um, obviously, there's been so, a certain amount of success with something like the Pebble um, that had a massively successful Kickstarter campaign, but they're a good bit cheaper than what Apple is actually proposing. Because these uh, prices start at $349, don't they? And they go right yes. up to Fancy, pa- Fancy Pants Gold one for something like, is it $17,000, I think I saw? Well, what you're looking at for the, smart, the Apple Watch Sport, which is the, you know, the kind of the silicon band one, that is going to, well, the, the French and German price for that so far is €399. Euro, and that's for the 38mm version. There's a 42mm version, obviously slightly bigger, in the U.S. prices, you have to add fifty dollars, so reasonably you kind of assume around similar price hike if you want to go for something slightly bigger. The Apple Watch, which is the one that most people would wear because it has got, say, leather bands or a Milanese loop or a stainless steel band, that starts at six hundred forty-nine euro and goes up um, depending on what material the band is. And then, obviously, as you mentioned, you have the uh, tricked-out um, eighteen-karat gold version, which is the Apple Watch. Edition and that's going to be limited edition. It's rose gold and or just plain gold. Either way, eleven thousand euro and up. It's it's a lot to pay for something that essentially is probably going to be obsolete within a couple of years because they'll bring out a new version and probably most likely a better version of it. Uh, or you would assume they would bring out a better version of it. So it is a bit of an investment. But any like any of these smartwatches, I mean, they're always going to be superseded at some point. So. It's not something that you buy with the intention of handing down to your child in, you know, 30 years' time. Uh, it's, it's something that you buy to use now, and hopefully it will do exactly what you need it to do. So, I mean, at that level, it's kind of a status symbol for people. They can say that they have uh, these upper, the upper end of the range r- rather than it being a, something that they are really crave the functionality of it and really believe in it as, as, as a product. Well, yes and no, because the, the thing is with Apple, Apple have put out a lot of products. I mean, they weren't the first person to put an MP3 player. They weren't the first person to have um, or first person to have a smartphone. I mean, these kind of things, they weren't even the first touchscreen phone. Like, there was PDAs long before there was the iPhone. The thing is, is that Apple manages to get a product and make it more usable. So, I mean, when people started raving about FaceTime, I mean... If you, or if you were in Europe at the time, I mean, we were kind of looking at each other saying, but we already have video calling on phones and nobody really uses it. The thing is, it's, it's a way of making it more usable and more accessible to people who otherwise would probably look at these things and think, no, this isn't for me. Now, there's still going to be a lot of people who are going to look at the Apple Watch and think, no, it's definitely not for me. It's a little bit too chunky. It's, you know, it's, it's just not really what I want. Um, the battery life in particular uh, I think it's going to be an issue for a lot of people. I mean, it, to be honest, I was slightly disappointed with the battery life. I was expecting a little bit more than an average of 18 hours. And you have to be careful when when you're talking about you know the average battery life because the average smartphone is supposed to last you know a certain amount of time in, in standby or uh, a certain amount of time when you're watching um, when you're watching videos or you're playing music. And they always give the kind of the, the top end, you know, the, the best possible case scenario. The truth is is that they rarely last what you think um, and 18 hours for battery life for most people is not really going to be enough this is going to be something you will have to charge every day um, there was a few other kind of I suppose uh, more detailed specs on the battery so um, so it's 18 hours for the average user um, 
how many of those that are out there, you know, that's another thing altogether. I mean, if you're, if you're the average user on your phone, you get more than a day out of your, your battery, but most people don't. So if you are putting calls through the watch, uh, you'll get three hours out of it. Um, if you're just using it to look at the time, which nobody's going to do, let's face it, uh, you're talking about over 70 hours of use. So but that's like, say, checking it four times an hour. Uh, that's with using it for absolutely nothing else. So obviously people are going to be using it for a mix of different things. So you might find that that 18 hours actually doesn't really add up for a lot of people. So, I mean, as as with the iPhone and um, some other devices, battery life is bound to be a source of uh, frustration, it seems, for Apple Watch users. Can I ask you about this phrase, digital crown? Because that seems to be one of the ones that they were pushing at the launches this week. Yes, it was. Um, it's something I've been talking about for a while. So basically on a mechanical watch, so the crown is the thing used to wind it, uh, to change the date or the time. Um, with the Apple Watch, what they've actually done is... They've made it uh, the main kind of input for the main way of scrolling through menus for zooming in if you're looking at photographs. Um, it's basically going to be your main way of interacting with the watch rather than the screen because the thinking is, well, the screen is so small. If you're trying to do pinch to zoom on a, a screen that size, well, it's not really going to work very well. And most Apple products that they've, they've brought out, I mean, they have this kind of unique uh, way of interacting with it, like say with the iPod, was the, the click wheel, that kind of thing. So this is that version now for for the watch. Um, it means basically we're poking at us. And one thing I did notice when we got a hands-on with it was that it did pick up fingerprints quite quickly. So if you want to keep your watch looking kind of pristine, uh, you'll be using this digital crown. It's also far easier to use than trying to tap at the tiny little icons for apps. So you can scroll through lists of songs or you press it to return to the home screen. If you get a long press, you get Siri. It, there's a bit of a learning curve with it, but once you get, say, maybe 10 minutes with it, you, it actually becomes pretty much natural. Okay, okay. And tell me then about what happens uh, when you get a no- notification um, on, on the watch. Well, if you get a notification, get an email, um, a text message, uh, even if you've, as I said, you've been stationary for too long, it, you'll get what it's called a tap. And it, it actually does feel like somebody tapping you on the wrist. Now, the whole thing about the watch that they were pushing at the event was, you know, it's a, a new way of communicating. It's their, their most personal product. It's, you know, intimate ways of, of communicating with friends and family and it does actually feel like, for all the world, like somebody is actually tapping you on the wrist. Now, I've used a lot of smartwatches, and it feels different. Now, it's not going to be, I don't think it's going to be something that, you know, would be a deal breaker for people, but it's just another thing. It just, it just works well, and it's something that, it's not massively intrusive. You know, you, you don't actually hear the vibration. You can just feel it, whereas some of the smartwatches I found, you could actually hear it when it was on your wrist, and, you know, really what you're, what you're kind of pushing away from and possibly uh, creating a whole new kind of antisocial behaviour level is people will be constantly checking watches um, and if you can actually hear it, you know, it makes it that bit more intrusive. Yeah, well, I have to say I'm a little bit uh, unnerved by the prospect of, of a, a tiny vibration on my wrist. I mean, you were saying it's not quite a jolt, but it, it is noticeable. Yes, it's noticeable to you, but it's it's kind of a it's a gentle tap as opposed to uh, being tasered, you know, it's that kind of thing. Um, I actually have to be honest, I, I quite liked it. As I said, I've I've used quite a few smartwatches, and it didn't feel as jarring as a lot of the, the smartwatch notifications. So for me, it was a positive. It's not as it's not going to be a deal breaker. It's not going to be the one thing that sells the watch. Uh, I think really what will be the what will be the thing that sells the watch is if the apps are done correctly because realistically speaking you won't use a smartwatch for 
the same amount of apps that you're going to use on your smartphone. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, people use kind of three or four apps. It's more like music and fitness. Um, Apple have covered uh, the music and fitness side of things with it, but they're bringing in other things like Uber, um, so you'd be able to, you know, give it your 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 location straight from your wrist. The one thing to note about the watch, though, is that it doesn't actually include GPS. So if you want to go for a run and use your watch, uh, while it has an accelerometer built into it, if you want to actually track your route with GPS, you'll have to bring your phone. Okay, that sounds like a lot of equipment for a run. but <laughs> It is, but I suppose a lot of people are already doing that anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and it does seem to have a uh, particular appeal for uh, fitness lovers. Um, a lot of these wearable tech gadgets are, are, are aimed at them, really, aren't they? I think so, yeah, but I think initially it's going to be the hardcore Apple fans that are going to buy this. I mean, you're talking about significant investment. Um, if you're a fitness kind of fan, well, there's, there's already cheaper gadgets available out there that are aimed solely at fitness or that do things slightly better. I mean, if you're looking for something to take running with you, there's GPS watches that you can bring with you. You don't have to bring your phone with you. Um, if you just want to track your activity, you know, there's bands you can pick up for €100 Euro or there's little kind of clip-on devices like the Fitbit that you can pick up for less than that. So I think it's got to kind of be an all-rounder for people. That There has to be something more than just fitness that will attract people to this. Okay, so I just have one more question, and that's 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 why why is this? Why is the Apple Watch important to Apple itself? Well, I suppose it is the first major product line that they've launched since the iPad. I'm not talking about, say, the iPhone 6. I mean, they're just iterations of existing products. So you're looking at a whole new category that it's moving into. Um, People expect an awful lot of Apple, and there's been, I suppose, some mutterings and not-so-quiet mutterings about whether or not the company has lost its edge when it comes to innovation. If they can make this a success, that will effectively silence that. But also you have to take into account that when Apple got very big with the iPhone, the competition, you know, it, it wasn't as big. Now the, the smartphone market is just absolutely saturated. And you look at the same with the tablet market. A while ago, it was the only tablet that you you wanted to own was an iPad. The problem is, is that iPad sales have been falling uh, over the last couple of years, mainly because people aren't replacing tablets the way they would replace a smartphone. I mean, there's, there's a certain amount of people who will always have to have the latest and greatest um, tablet, but realistically, you know, it's such an investment and you don't use it as often as a smartphone. It doesn't break as easily as a smartphone. You're not taking it to the same situation. So people are typically hanging on to an iPad for longer than they would hang on to an iPhone. You also have to take into account the fact that the phones are getting that bit bigger. So with, um, say, that I hate this word, but phablets, I mean, these are the kind of six-inch phones and people don't necessarily need to buy a seven-inch tablet or an eight-inch tablet anymore. And that was what I suppose people had started to turn to because they didn't want the 10-inch tablet to carry around with them. They don't need to carry a tablet anymore because they can do it all on the bigger screen phones. And they've become increasingly popular, which we also saw when Apple actually launched the iPhone 6 Plus. They had decided to, to take that jump and go bigger. So, I mean, they're saying that now the, the iPads are still selling millions. So, you know, it's not a, a it's not a bad situation for Apple by any stretch of the imagination. But there are a, a couple of reasons why the the watch is success. Okay, thanks, Kira. Let's see what's next for the Apple Watch. At Irish Life, we can tell you that forty nine percent of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. 
Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. Now, he was at the heart of the legal establishment for four decades, but just who was Arthur Cox? Arthur Beasley has been reporting on the legal firm's involvement in Japan Tobacco's threatened court action against new cigarette packaging laws. But he's also been looking at the man himself. Arthur... Arthur Cox was for a long time an extremely well-known figure in Ireland, but he died 50 years ago, and to some extent, his story has been forgotten. That is true. Arthur Cox died in June of 1965, and whereas he would have been a very, very well-known individual around town for for decades, uh, I think it is fair to say that the story has largely receded into the midst of time. Uh, However, uh, I, I have come across a biography of the man by Eugene McCaig, who uh, is a former chairman and former managing partner of uh, Arthur Cox. And in this book, which he published in 1994, uh, again, uh, a long time ago, uh, the story of Arthur Cox's life is set out and it proves to be quite an intriguing story. So tell us a little bit about, you know, who he was and where he came from. He was born in 1891, I believe. Yes, I mean, it's such a long time ago now. It goes right back to the uh, end of the uh, 19th century. Um, Arthur Cox was the son of an upper-middle-class doctor. Uh, The family home was on Merrion Square. He attended Belvedere College. Seems to have been quite a star pupil there. Uh, And was one of the the only individual, in fact, according to the book, to to have received a scholarship from the forerunner of the National University of Ireland and indeed from the National University of Ireland. And the book suggests that he is uh, he was one of the first two uh, students to be enrolled uh, as a student in the National University when it was set up. So he was really very well educated, but his big breakthrough came in the 1920s and in, in 1920 that year in particular. Tell us what he did that well, year. Well, what happened was that he, he, he uh, qualified as a solicitor in 1915. It, it was a time of ferment. Uh, many of the people he would have known in uh, the National University or University College Dublin, as people would know it now, um, subsequently came to the fore in that entire revolutionary period and the War of Independence and would have taken high political office in the 1920s. He was a solicitor in a smaller firm in 1920, Uh, As the War of Independence still raged, he set up his own company on Suffolk Street. Uh, After independence, a lot of the people who he knew uh, were in high political office, and it is fair to say that uh, his nascent practice uh, benefited from that kind of proximity. There was an old legal order, uh, established firms, firms of the old order, and at the moment of statehood, it's fair to say that their influence would have declined and that uh, there would have been uh, what what would have come into being, essentially, was a new uh, business class, a new political class, and all that followed. So he had many friends in the Cumann Nguel government, um, but so he was, and he was very established by the end of the twenties. So what what happened then when when Fianna Fáil took power in in, in nineteen thirty two? 
Well, he was a he, he he was very became very established in the nineteen twenties. There's no doubt about that. He was legal advisor to Siemens at a time when the, they were advising the nascent Irish state on the Shannon electricity scheme. He became legal uh, the legal advisor to the uh, ESB at the same time. However, the sense was that when Fianna Fáil took power in nineteen thirty two, that a lot of that business went elsewhere. Now, Eugene McCaigan, the book makes the point that uh, the new government uh, appointed Arthur Cox as the first legal agent for Board Namona, but the sense from the book is that the advance that he would have made in his own practice at that time would have been when Fianna Fáil was introducing laws to restrict the foreign ownership of companies, and Arthur Cox apparently was the go-to man around town uh, for the uh, establishment of legal manoeuvres, if you like, to circumvent those rules. Now, rhetorically at least, the sense is that uh, the uh, Fianna Fáil administration would have been very much uh, in the doll and, 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 and elsewhere saying that, look, at you know, they were all for Irish ownership, yet there appears to have been uh, some kind of a tacit approval for these legal circumventions because nothing was ever done to close them down. And, um, you know, he was very successful at that period, but, um, you know, was it uh, was there an element of luck there or was he a workaholic? Um, I think a, 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 what comes through the book is that he uh, appears to have been very, very, very dedicated to his work. There's a sense, uh, certainly, that this would have been described, this would be described in modern phraseology, if you like, as a... As, as, uh, as, as a workaholic, but at the same time, I think the sense as well is that uh, you know he would not have succeeded in making the advances that he made were it not for the fact that his uh, his counsel was so trusted and that he appears to have been uh, quite a talented lawyer and one with a great uh, legal capacity. And uh, while the proximity to people in power was there at the very outset. The uh, the sense is that the longevity of the career and the seniority of the man for decades uh, would uh, essentially flows from the, the the capacity and the talent he was able to bring to bear. Tell us about his personal life. Uh, in 1940, Mar- Arthur Cox married Bridget O'Higgins, who was the widow of Kevin O'Higgins, uh, a friend of Arthur Cox's, who was Minister for Justice in that first uh, free state government and who had been assassinated in 1927. He was Justice Minister at, at the time. Now, that, was a, uh, that assassination was a legacy of the Civil War. So that was, uh, that was how he became established in, in family life. But he called her Mrs O'Higgins. The uh, the book says that uh, at, at all times, even after their marriage, that uh, he described his own wife as Mrs. O'Higgins, and it says that at the end of dinner parties, he'd be the type of person who would say that it was time that myself and Mrs. O'Higgins go to bed, even though she was Mrs. Cox. Yeah, so there seems like there's a good um, uh, some nice stories uh, along those lines in the book. I also like the one uh, where a client who was grateful to him had named a racehorse after him, but he didn't particularly like that. Well, what happened was that the, the, the horse had run in races and that uh, friends of the man himself would then uh, telephone uh, on the day of the race and say, gosh, you must be very tired after that very arduous race. <laughs> so the the censor uh, of the book is that a uh, request was made to change the name of the horse. Yeah, well, I suppose, um, yeah, it might get a little bit tired to keep being asked how tired he was after after a bit of a canter. Um, so he, he wasn't just a solicitor, though. This is the interesting thing about him as well. He had a couple of other um, titles to his name later in life. 
Well, uh, early on in his career, he, he would have established himself as a, as a company director. He was a director for decades of the PJ Carroll Tobacco Company, of a company called Irish Ropes and an assortment of others. One trade union magazine or newspaper described him at one point as a lord of the boardroom. He was also an independent senator. He had been friendly with John A. Costello at university. He was a rival of his um, uh, as well in university debating. And uh, Costello, when he became Taoiseach for the second time in the second inter-party government in the 1950s, appointed Cox to uh, the Senate and he uh, served as one term as an independent senator. After the death of his wife in, 19, in the early 1960s, uh, he decided that he was going to become a priest. And uh, via an intermediary, uh, another priest, an approach was made to Archbishop John Charles McQuaid. Uh, the Archbishop at the time was not in favour of uh, a man who was quite an old man at the time uh, becoming a Jesuit, but he agreed that were he to spend two years in Milltown Park, that he would uh, ordain him thereafter. So Father Arthur Cox was indeed ordained in 1963, and uh, after a certain period, uh, he uh, went to the uh, missions in northern Rhodesia, as it was called then, and indeed was present uh, at the moment of uh, Zambia's independence uh, in the uh, in the mid 1960s. So he was present for the birth of two states, you could say. Well, I mean, that's not many people who can say that, but it turned out to be the final act of his life, didn't it? Because he died. He died there. Uh, yeah. He did. Uh, there was a, a, a motor accident and uh, he was uh, injured and uh, not long afterwards he died there and was buried there. So just to um, bring us back to the present day, um, Arthur Cox, the law firm that is, uh, that he gave his name to, has been back in the news recently because of its advice to uh, Japan Tobacco. Um, and the tobacco legislation now, um, it was uh, the expectation is there that there will be some court action initiated by the firms against the commencement of, of, of the legislation. Yeah, the uh, the involvement of the, the, the modern Arthur Cox company, if you like, uh, arises from its its, uh, its work for Japan Tobacco. When the plain pack legislation was working its way through the doll, the uh, company uh, wrote to uh, James Riley and to Leo Varadkar, the letter was copied as well to the Taoiseach, and essentially sought to block the legislation in its tracks in Parliament. Um, that did not happen. Uh, the legislation finished its passage through Parliament and it was signed into law this week by President Michael D. Higgins. Now, the expectation on the ground is that either Japan Tobacco or any of the other firms, there is a threat of legal action as well from uh, Imperial Tobacco, that one or other, or maybe all of the tobacco companies, will initiate action in the High Court to prevent the commencement of the uh, legislation. In other words, legislation is now in the statute books, but it doesn't take effect until a particular point. And the, the sense is that the legal challenge will come before commencement to block commencement. Okay, so it's very much a watch this space. And um, that's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast with me, Laura Slattery. My thanks to Kira O'Brien and to Arthur Beasley. Um, Sinead O'Shea produced the show today and JJ Vernon was sound engineer. Don't forget that you can get the latest business news straight to your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. Until next time, goodbye.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.